You're listening to Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders. Welcome, everyone, to our monthly shop talk series where we get at Eckerson Group our research and consulting teams together to talk shop, to exchange ideas, things that are learning and client engagements, or on research reports and tasks. Before we get started, just a little bit on Eckerson Group. Uh, we are a research and consulting company specializing in data analytics. That is all we do. We have two main divisions, a research group that does research, writes articles and reports on new and emerging topics, techniques, and technologies. And we have a consulting arm that provides data strategy, uh, data architecture, data governance, master data management, self-service analytics, and advanced analytics advisory to uh, Fortune 2000 companies worldwide. Uh, we have a lot of clients on our consulting side, ranging from Xerox, AAA, Brigham Young University, PetSmart, Sam Adams, New Balance, and many, many others. Today in our shop talk discussion, we have a, a number of our research analysts and consultants with us. Me, uh, Wayne Eckerson, uh, we've got Kevin Petrie here, Dave Wells, Joe Hillary, and Prashant Suthakal. On the consulting side, Sean Hewitt is here, Mario D. Giovanni, Aaron Fuller, and Andy Sohn. So welcome to the panel. So we're going to dive right in here with our predictions for 2021. That's the topic of our shop talk today. Uh, and I'm going to start out with prediction number one. This was mine, which is uh, rethinking our work-life balance in the age of COVID-19. Um, I think COVID, for all its tragedies uh, and misfortunes offers uh, us a chance to hit the reset button and rethink how we want to balance our work life and our personal lives. Personally, uh, I'm thinking seriously of not traveling as much once the, the COVID quarantines uh, lift, stay home more, focus on uh, improving my, my work-life balance, perhaps exercise more, um, meditate more. So with that, and I'm not sure this is a prediction as much as a, a wish, but I'm hoping that uh, maybe some of our panelists uh, have thought about something like this. So let me turn to the panel and ask uh, all of you, uh, has COVID-19 uh, changed your work-life balance permanently or just temporarily? I, I think too, well, uh, what I've been seeing in the, uh, in the different interactions is that there is much more of a tolerance for the work-life balance right right now, as everyone's in the same situation, so as uh, you know, as people are are now taking care of kids at home, as they are you know not at school, they have to work with them in terms of helping with uh, with their remote classwork and things like that. There's a lot more tolerance on Zoom meetings and other of uh, those types of things to to understand that this is just the way it is now, uh, and that's a little bit different than a year or two ago when you had a child screaming in the background or you had a child interrupt you, there was kind of that probably a little more concern or, or consternation that really you should be focusing on work and focusing on work all, all the time and that's not appropriate. So it definitely has changed this year you know, about what people are willing to expect of people and tolerate in terms of the work-life balance and knowing that everyone has to do that. I, I am kind of interested in a year or two, if that goes back and we're going to ex expect people to be totally focused on work during the working hours. I hope that 
that that tolerance mostly stays because I think something you said were kind of triggered a thought with me, which, you know, you said something about we're all going through the same thing right now. But when you think about it at any given moment, you know, there is a substantial subset of us who are going through big things, even with COVID not going on, you know? And I think that maybe after this, if we could all realize, if, if everyone collectively could realize that, that a, a good chunk of us are going through things in life that are difficult and time-consuming and interruptive, and that um, giving each other more grace in general for those types of things actually can improve uh, morale and it just improve our lives in general. I think the reality is that it's probably somewhat permanent. And I, I may not be representative here because I was sort of on the cusp of retirement when this whole thing happened. But I can assure you that for me, it's permanent. But the positive thing that I've experienced through all of this is when we meet on Zoom and we meet in this, these various ways with people working from home, we see more of the individual. When we were going to offices, we put on our work face, we put on our work personality. So I feel like I know each and every one of my colleagues and my coworkers better today than I did before this happened. And I think most of us are going to be reluctant to let that go because before we are workers, employees, professionals, or anything else, we are people and we need to stay that way. I think organizations are going to start to spend a little more focus or, or time looking at productivity metrics, right, to uh, ensure that you know, people who are working at home are giving them the, the, the results that they need in their roles. Another consideration is working at home creates a bit of a struggle in maintaining that division or that line between your work life and your home life. And, and a lot of people struggle with trying to defend that home time and not lose that safe place. I think there are uh, benefits. It, it could be a win-win for business because employers that embrace telecommuting on a long-term basis can have more productive workers. Um, maybe they're splitting their time between home and the office, or they're hiring people that they never could have reached before because they're in new zip codes and they don't have to pay for million-dollar houses in the Bay Area. They have a lower cost of living and they're happy and very productive. So it could really be a win-win from a workforce perspective. I know we're running out of time here, but I did hear something this morning on a call that I, I think is very relevant here. So I was talking on this call with the CIO of a multinational firm who they have 40 different companies, et cetera, and they are uh, a Microsoft Teams shop. And as, as some of you know who use that, Microsoft has a My Analytics platform, which really gives, gives them a great deal of detail about how people are using Teams. And what he had said is that in his company, at least, uh, people are working longer hours and putting more on the calendar because they don't have that really easy one-on-one -on -one type of interaction. So what they're seeing, at least from a calendar standpoint, is that people are working late because they're putting one-on-one -on -one meetings with, with their teams or with peers at six o'clock at night or seven o'clock at night. So that is uh, one potential or at least one small point of data for one company we're saying maybe it's not necessarily uh, helping the work-life balance. <laughs> yeah, I think the rest of the world is, is learning what we as a virtual company from the get-go have always known that uh, virtual workers work longer hours and work harder and more intensely than than everyone else because we don't have the uh, the little distractions uh, at work. By and it's interesting. One of our clients is stuck on an application reporting application where they need to report employee tracking 
uh, from a software program that tracks all uh, employee clicks, you know, that they're doing just to make sure that they're working because you know, they can't see them. So certainly a transition. I'm not sure all the companies will will make it into the virtual world after COVID lifts. But anyway, this is a great discussion. Um, but let's move on to the uh, the next prediction. Uh, Kevin, I think this is yours. AI marketplaces drive AI adoption and monetization. Artificial intelligence marketplaces are cropping up. This is early stage, but these are essentially web platforms that are matching a lot of a growing amount of supply with a skyrocketing demand for AI models. And a lot of organizations are finding that the models they're creating, and a lot of data scientists are finding that the models they're creating can be applied to a number of different business scenarios. So this rising supply and rising demand can find its equilibrium on marketplaces online. Uh, so my prediction is that a lot of mainstream enterprises are going to start experimenting with this. You have three different groups. You have business people that want to uh, experiment with and potentially pr productionalize machine learning models or other AI models. You have data scientists that would like to monetize their handiwork or potentially apply it to a few different use cases. And then you have developers that uh, want to find stuff that they can customize and fit into their company's operations. So it's early days. Uh, this will not be mainstream tomorrow, but I do think a lot of mainstream enterprises are going to start to experiment it. And so you started to see uh, IBM C3.ai, which went public to great fanfare last week, uh, those companies and then some startups like Gravity AI um, are starting to put these platforms out there and apply it to a number of different verticals and applications. So Kevin, just to clarify, uh, when you say AI marketplace, you're talking about a place on the web, a website where people can go and uh, download AI models that some data scientist has built somewhere for some reason, for some purpose, and either pay for them or get them free? Yeah. Generally, this is not an open source model, not a freeware model. These are paid transactions. So you can go as a developer or as a data scientist, find, procure, test these models. It's very interesting. If you see some of them on there, they're, they're dealing with different applications that for example, I found a model just a few minutes ago for identifying bears, and this is uh, useful to different national parks because they want to understand if a bear is walking someplace you don't want it to be. Um, a lot of different applications that have wide uses. But yes, that's correct. This is generally for paid marketplaces for buying and selling models. So is it a yogi bear or a boo-boo bear, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I helped write a report that was published this summer on data exchanges. And that's basically all about public data marketplaces. And actually some of yeah. the ones that we looked at were like streaming data sets and things like that, or machine driven data sets. Uh, and a lot of those marketplaces were not uh, monetizable yet. Uh, you, you had to go complete the transaction with the seller separately through a separate channel except for Amazon. Amazon has a, a data marketplace where you can actually buy and complete the transaction for data set right there on the platform. So I have to assume in that these AI marketplaces, you, you're not doing commerce there yet, but they are probably putting buyers and sellers together and allowing them to conduct a transaction outside the platform. 
No, that's a great point. We're not at the maturity level of having an Amazon marketplace um, by any stretch. And AI obviously needs a fair amount of customization and model drift is not a small issue with uh, machine learning. So a lot of these things need to be tweaked, but I think it's more of a place for individuals to find each other and um, not necessarily review something on the shelf with a distinct price tag and a click button for buy, but rather an exchange that can take place because of the connection that happens. Kevin, one of the things when you talk about AI, especially and in the uh, regulated industry in particular, I mean, you really need transparency within your models right now. They have to be explainable. They have to be transparent and you have to understand all of the bias, potential bias uh, in there. And a lot of doing that kind of exposes the IP, if you will, or the, the secret sauce of the models, et cetera. How are these uh, marketplaces addressing those types of requirements that come? Yeah, Andy, great point. The platforms I've seen and I've reviewed, say, a dozen of them so far, are not taking on governance burden or providing too much guidance on that yet. And so I think the presumption is that that liability and the onus is going to fall on the buyer and the seller. Right now, these are more um, innovation discussions and figuring out how to get uh, creative juices going so that someone who creates a model can find five different applications that might well be monetizable. On Kevin's point about data monetization, I definitely feel there is a growing trend, at least in the last six months. I had a discussion with the Big Five oil company, and uh, they actually monetized their data by sharing it with the trucking companies, so that all this while those data was just used for reporting. They actually shared it with their trucking companies, and they are talking about it. And um, last month, I had a chat with a fintech company in Toronto. They were also talking about it. So definitely, I can vouch for the monetization is really picking steam in the last few months. One thing, I, you know, I can see image recognition models being popular and, and easy to kind of use and reuse. But some of the models that will run you know, banks or financial institutions, customer retention models and things like that, I, I, I find that might be hard. It might must require too much customization. And, and you really have to understand that model pretty deeply before you'd be willing to use it. Here's an example of, of one. It's a business unto itself. It's not a marketplace, but I could see parts of this going to a marketplace. I'm coming from the insurance industry recently, auto insurance, an adjustment there. So there are some companies too, specifically right now, who can take pictures of cars and can identify what that car is what model the car is, what year that car is, can look at the damage of the car, and then it can help price or estimate what, what it would cost to fix that car. You know, so there are many different models in there, whereas, you know, like we talked about the bear, identify what this car is. And maybe there is a generic market for that where we want to identify that car, identify you know, what kind of damage is in the car. So, you know, Kevin, one, one of my predictions that we're not going to get to today had to do with the need for standards for AI and machine learning models, because the reality yeah. is there are a lot of bad models out there. So, <laughs> so my question relative to AI marketplaces is, do you think AI marketplaces will help to remediate the problem of bad models? Will it aggravate the problem or will it have no effect at all? Uh, great question. I think it will help because I think it will, this is a community, our tech community, broadly speaking, that um, through transparency and open collaboration tends to improve the quality of software that it shares. So I think it'll help because you could have two very talented data scientists 
that produce one thing for one area and they say, you know what, there's no IP risk for us if we start to sell this outside. And the other users could find entirely new problems that need to be debugged. But it's a great question. I think a lot of the use cases, there's really good ideas here on use cases, are boiling down to IoT, where it's image recognition, or it's um, understanding impacts, understanding sound. So another interesting model uh, is recognizing a fall detector. Maybe it's in a factory, maybe it's in a retirement community. If someone falls, you wanna know. That's a very basic tactical thing that doesn't introduce compliance risk, um, but it's highly scalable to a lot of different things. So I think the easy use cases to start will not introduce governance risk, but actually into simpler tactical things. So assuming so, someone falls, but you're listening in through some kind of a remote microphone in a retirement home, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. And I think a lot of people who have loved ones living at home alone right. would take a lot of comfort. In yeah, that's interesting. All right, guys, this is yeah. another good prediction here, but we should move on. Uh, so let's go to number three here. Uh, also another interesting one. This is Andy's uh, intelligent process automation takes root. We, we all know about robotic process automation, but uh, let us know what's going on here, Andy. In, in the past two, three years or so, we've really gotten to a generation of robotic process engineering, which in my mind is actually a generation ahead of where we were uh, a decade ago, which I and a lot of people affectionately call screen scraping uh, type of work. So um, RPA has been uh, really taking hold and it's been taking hold and being adopted and being very useful in very specific, small scale, deterministic type of business processes. So it's gotten its feet in there and it's been very uh, successful there in saving time and resources and effort there. As that is becoming uh, more and more adopted, the industry is really uh, adding on to that and looking at not only automating the very deterministic if then else type of rules and things that are very easy for people to do and actually emulate what people are doing, but start to put cognitive capabilities and other that it can not only do processes that just uh, imitate what people can do, but actually uh, learn what people can do and augment what humans can do. Uh, so that is really bringing this technology uh, and packaging it with technologies like image recognition uh, and natural language generation and understanding, cognitive engines, uh, smart workflow, et cetera. So with that, it really becomes also helpful to not only look at these small discrete type of workflows, but really look at it in, in a much broader process engineering and process automation workflow. So, you know, besides just looking being standalone bots, there's a lot of you know, low code vendors and other process automation vendors who are looking to make sure they incorporate this type of technology into their process. It's, it's both the, the standard RPA vendors are looking to um, augment their capabilities with low code and process work and vice versa. That I think we'll really be seeing that accelerate in 2021. So Andy, just to clarify, RPA, Robotic Process Automation, has been heavily used in financial services companies in the back offices to kind of automate some of the more mundane things or tasks that people used to do, like I copy all, the, all these files from this 
account to that account, right? It's basically been a uh, stop gap or a you know, poor man's data integration. I've got two or three systems. They have two or three different front ends instead of or in lieu of writing APIs or being able to integrate that data in the back end. We just want to uh, emulate and make quicker what a human would do, which is kind of cut and paste the data between them. So certainly some of those things would be better served by doing a, a much more robust data integration effort. But there are a lot of reasons why companies aren't doing that. Uh, cost, time, risk, all of those types of things. So it's almost like, uh, instead of just uh, basic copy and pasting, maybe with IPA, it's more like, okay, let's look at the content of this file that you're copying and based on the content, then decide where to put it. Yeah, I mean, that that is one, but let me give you what I think might be a better use case. So there's the whole customer service use cases. So, you know, we're looking at triaging customer, customer service. service. Many companies still have many points of access for customer interaction. They may have different, different, different phone, phone systems, systems, different uh, contact, contact systems, systems, whether they be you know, multiple email systems or multiple chat systems. systems. And a lot of the initial work is, okay, well, let's look this person up, see if they are a VIP client, like in the bank and wealth management client, uh, or you know, I recognize the, the name and let me route them to the proper uh, channel or the proper person or the proper group to take care of it or let me you know, route it. So you know, kind of the simple, you know, if then, rules. Now, as part of the intelligent conversation uh, now is let's look up the client and, and let's do sentiment analysis on what they're saying. You know, besides understanding who they are, is it a positive interaction? Is it a negative interaction? Are they talking about a specific product uh, that I can glean? Is it, you know, again, I'm coming from the insurance industry, are they talking about a particular uh, hurricane event or weather event that, that's happening that I can do something specific with? So it's really kind of then, you know, going a lot deeper and doing cognitive capabilities of reading those, you know, reading the text, say. The, those types of things, which 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 a person would normally need to to do, but adding machine learning, adding text analytics, cognitive analytics, you know, um, being able to then route those appropriately and take the workflow appropriately with them. So, in some respects, you're taking this traditional RPA, which has been mostly background work, and some delay is acceptable, and bringing it to the foreground and making it real time. So I could. I can see IPA doing real-time language translations of written or spoken words and, yes. and some of those kinds of applications. I can see it becoming uh, uh, very beneficial for privacy management and, and data stewardship as well, helping to automate a lot of the uh, decisions that are happening behind the scenes and uh, triggering the workflow when necessary and uh, helping to mitigate some of the, the resourcing challenges, even with data quality management uh, and within the MDM, trying to deal with the volume of, of records uh, that need to be reviewed by a data steward uh, and making it more manageable. I think this type of functionality will be hugely beneficial and we'll see a lot of growth there because there's no other option for them. They can't hire the resources they need, so they need to uh, apply AI and, and machine learning uh, tools to, to automate as much as possible. Let me extend your example just for a second, Sean. That's that's a good example because, okay, you've got your data governance system, you've got your master data management or data 
quality system. What you want to do then is you actually ideally want to uh, fix the data in the source. Go back to your Salesforce system, or your ERP system, or something like that, and fix it in the source. And that again is where an intelligent IPA can can help because those systems may not be integrated to go back and actually fix it and to do the things you need to go fix it. But right. instead of having a steward do it, we would you know have a robotic agent be able to do it and navigate through the complexities of and, and have that related to a, a risk matrix so it knows whether it needs to get approval for that update or it can just go ahead and apply it excellent conversation that's this technology has a lot of promise obviously and a lot of applications that probably uh like data governance that people hadn't thought about yet in fact we may have uncovered a, a new application for this and maybe we should start writing about it that's a hint sean it, it's a good segue to our next prediction actually there we go this is yours right our fourth prediction is privacy management becomes embedded in analytics tools and data pipelines. Uh, and, and, and just as Andy was, it was talking about, we, we need to find a way to mitigate the resource challenges we have within data management. So I've uh, spent time this year talking to uh, a variety of organizations and, and was involved in workshops with, with NIST around their, uh, their privacy management framework. And it, it's a huge challenge for a lot of organizations, just having the manpower to even keep up with the regulatory requirements, let alone track all of the data. And, you know, we all know that the, you know, the volume of data is increasing, the complexity of data is evolving, and uh, it's, it's very difficult to keep on top of, of all of that to be able to adequately manage privacy. And what we're going to see is more and more demand for privacy management functionality integrated in, into these tools. So if you think of you know, analytics pipelines and through the entire stream from data acquisition right through to consumption, we need to provide the privacy management staff with visibility to what's being collected. Uh, how is it being uh, spread across the organization? W what is it being used for? So they can assess that risk and make sure we're taking appropriate steps to protect that. And, and data governance will facilitate some of that. So what we'll see is the, the vendors who are investing in that and promoting that functionality are going to do better this year than the vendors who are lagging in, in that area. And we saw that with uh, Microsoft and uh, when they announced Purview earlier this month, there was heavy focus on the privacy functionality in, in their marketing material and how it automates uh, the privacy management and increases the visibility to privacy risk. So I think we're going to see that trend continue. So just for everyone's uh, notification, Purview is Microsoft's new data catalog tool. So do you think this is uh, more for the benefit of the data privacy uh, experts in each company, or is it going to be more widely used? In I think both for privacy and for data governance as a gen general. So data governance to facilitate privacy management and share that workload. Data governance has a responsibility of maintaining an awareness of what data is being brought in and, and classifying. They take direction from privacy management. Uh, so there's a, a lot of collaboration there. But in terms of you know, going back to the uh, intelligent process automation concept, you know, if we can have technology that is connected to a risk management process, for example, so when certain things happen within that, that pipeline, that we have flagged to trigger a, an entry into a risk log, set off risk management workflow, it streamlines that process for the uh, privacy management teams. 
Yeah, I know one thing that's interesting with some of the vendors I've been speaking to this fall, I was looking at that combination of the pipeline builder and the catalog, and then expanding some of the catalog functionality of auto tagging and embedding that into the pipeline. So as it's coming from that source and going to the target, it's checking for things like, oh, this looks an awful lot like a social security number. Hey, data steward, maybe you should flag this or mask this. So it's not going out to the entire company, but only it's like people have access to those levels of security. Yeah, exactly. And having your catalogs integrated into uh, pretty much everything is going to be important as well. So having a standalone data catalog that, that doesn't have the uh, AI capabilities to automatically tag things, uh, not just privacy, but uh, sensitive data as well for other reasons, it's going to be critical. Uh, Sean, are, are you using as part of the, this, what I'm about to say is part of these tools or some other tools, but I'm, I, you know, I've been running into for years besides privacy management, uh, acceptable use and data sharing agreements, data contractual agreements that, you know, because of third-party data or data that you're the custodian of or other particular aspects that there's, it really seems to be more of a need to understand, can this data be used for this particular purpose as part of the pipeline? Are these vendors and tools doing that? Or are you seeing that as a, as a separate mm -hmm. tool or gaps or anything? Not yet, but I, I think it needs to get to that point, right? Where we're informing the privacy management resources or the data owner, data steward of that new application of that data, right? And, and making sure that they have a chance to assess the risk and make sure that data is fit for purpose. It doesn't expose us to additional uh, privacy requirements or anything like that, that we haven't taken care of. That's, that's good news. The closer we can bring Oh, privacy awareness to everybody who touches data. I don't care whether it's the data engineer or the self-service data analyst using Tableau. The closer we can bring privacy awareness to those people every time they touch data, the closer we come to really being able to tackle this very difficult and, and growing problem. Ideally, we'd be able to uh, connect the training platforms to the, the analytics. So in order to use you know, a certain report or model, or even just uh, have access to a specific set of data, you know, they have to have certain training, uh, even if it's just a consultation with the steward in order to uh, mitigate any risks around uh, accessing that data. So Sean, uh, typically whose problem are we solving here? That's another challenge. So in some organizations, it's the privacy management team. In other organizations, it's IT. And in others, it's data governance. And, and so in my current blog series, you know, I, I'm prescribing that, you know, data governance be the bridge there and own a, a lot of that responsibility, taking direction from privacy management and IT. And uh, within data governance, we're doing a lot of that work already, or we should be, to maintain the knowledge of what data we have and making sure it's classified properly. So it doesn't make sense to do all of that separately just for personal data. So use data governance as the linchpin to that. And then, you know, the information uh, is shared from there. Great conversation guys. Again, uh, but let's move on to our fifth uh, prediction today. Uh, and this is Dave's. All right. And this, this is a great segue in many ways. So what I've said is that based on the explosion of data, especially personal data that's collected, and the number of people that work with data who are not necessarily trained in data governance, data protection, data security, or any of these things, we really have to tackle this question of data ethics. 
And the question has been around for, it first came to my attention about 20 years ago by Richard Hackathorn. And I first wrote about it something like a decade ago. And there's been some stream of conversation about data ethics for many years now, but very little real forward movement. And what I'm saying and predicting is that the time has come when data governance groups will need to step up to this question of data ethics. And the reason is because people are becoming more aware. Individuals, you and me who are having personal data collected about us every time we shop on Amazon or every time we move to a location where our phone GPS is reporting our location. Personal data is being collected all the time and people are becoming aware of it. And it's going to become something that is frequently discussed and affects the reputations and the credibility of corporations. So we have to step up to this business of data privacy, data security, data protection. We've attempted to do it with process. We've attempted to do it with policy. We've attempted to do it with regulations. Sean just showed us an example of attempting to do it with technology. Each of these is a step in the right direction, but we're not going to fix it until we fix it by recognizing it as a cultural and behavioral problem. And that's where ethics comes into play. And ethics is a hard problem. Ethics is the question of doing what's right, and right is subjective. So the only way we're going to get there is to begin to socialize in organizations this question of ethics, have conversations about it, ask the hard questions about anonymity and informed consent and transparency, and all of those hard questions about what is the right thing to do when we collect data, what is the right thing to do when we use data, what is the right thing to do when we share data? What is the right thing to do when we sell data? All of these questions need answers, and every person who touches data needs to be able to have some guidelines to make intelligent judgments about what is the right thing. Policy isn't going to solve it by itself. Regulation, as rigorous as GDPR is, that's not going to solve it. Legal, we can't legislate ethics. So it's time to have the conversations, to create the corporate guidelines, to embed ethics into culture. And I believe data governance groups have to take the lead on this. They have to foster the ethical culture. They have to get people to discuss it and to care about it. And I think 2021 will see those forward-thinking data governance groups step up to this and start having the internal discussions of data ethics. I'm curious, Dave, you're talking a lot about sort of the importance of consumer awareness around the collection of their data. And I'm wondering, are you starting to see um, examples of consumers penalizing uh, companies that are, are not being ethical with their data? I know we've seen some big data breaches in the last couple of years. Um, there's been a lot of publicity around it, but are you starting to see sort of a change in behavior driven by that consumer pressure? We're not seeing as much change as I would like, but we are seeing some erosion a simple example, not, not one I entirely agree with, but this happened to me just Saturday. I had a Zoom gathering put together for a lot of family that normally we gather sometime around the holidays and get together um, because this year we can't gather in person. I put together a Zoom gathering that uh, everybody who attended enjoyed. Two of my brothers opted out because it is Zoom and they don't trust Zoom with their data, and they will not put the Zoom app on their computer or their phone. 
So, okay, that's not a big enough movement to penalize Zoom, but it is a reality of companies will lose customers and companies will lose confidence of the customers that they have if there is any perception that they're not going to behave ethically with the data that they have access to. I guess one of the questions there, though, is in that Zoom example, I've, I assume you're, you're using a free Zoom account and not a paid Zoom account. I am actually using a paid Zoom account. My Zoom account has no effect on the perceptions of my brothers. Right. You know, I, I think there is the... Uh the compromise that some of us have to make sometimes as to, you know, when we are using a product for free, such as my free Zoom account or my free Facebook account, you know, there is that implied expectation that you, you don't get anything for free and you're, you do have to give up something to get that. So I'm just curious how you, you know, how we make that better. If I do have a paid account, maybe I sh should expect total privacy and you're not doing it with my data. But I guess probably can't expect that on a free account like most of this stuff. And, and one of the problems that we run into is, you know, ethics are very subjective, right? Yeah. So uh, I think we're going to see a lot of organizations leveraging focus groups to really help understand what their customers or what their stakeholders expect in terms of privacy management. And then they need to make a decision around the values that they have as an organization. Do they just want to strive for minimal compliance? Or do they want to strive to meet their customers' expectations or exceed their customers' expectations in terms of how they're managing privacy? And then to Dave's other point around making sure that the staff, uh, not just staff, but contractors and, and other people who have access to that data understand what the expectations are on what they can do with it, what they can't do with it. And when they have questions, uh, when something's not clear, who do they go to to get answers? So those are the type of things that we, we need to focus on. A lot of organizations, you know, they put a privacy statement up on their website and think they're done. Well, there, there's a lot more that needs to be done to really build that awareness within the organization and within that, build the ethics and, and educate people around what's ethical behavior and what's not and have the appropriate decision-making in place. So if a decision is made around ethical processing that borders on inappropriate uh, profiling or something like that, that it, it resides with the appropriate level of authority within the organization. And to connect Andy's thoughts and Sean's thoughts, yes, there are things that you expect to give up if you're getting a quote free account. Most people aren't aware of how much they're expected to give up Sean made reference to the privacy statement, and you also stated that ethics is subjective, so this is my judgment, my perception of what is right. I think it would be a good step toward being ethical in how we deal with personal data, simply to produce privacy statements that are comprehensible by the ordinary person that aren't written of, by, and for attorneys. Clear, concise, honest privacy statements would be a good step towards saying we want to be ethical with your data. Yeah, and, and that's something that GDPR and most of the, the newer uh, regulations are insisting on. Yeah. So the challenge, of course, is that on the one hand, there's no better time than now because there's so much public discourse about 
data privacy, and you have senators arguing with tech CEOs on live um, hearings and so forth. But it doesn't seem that we're converging on a common set of requirements from a regulatory perspective, and therefore the task is getting more complicated rather than less. Would you agree, Dave? It, it, it seems that the moving target about what good is is also a challenge. Yeah, I, I would agree that we're, we're not going to solve it with regulations. We're not going to solve it with policy. Yes, we have senators talking with tech CEOs, but we also have people who live in the real world who can talk about this. And, you know, pardon my cynicism about senators and tech CEOs, but none of them have a clue what goes on in, in the lives of the ordinary person. Um, I don't believe we're going to solve this by external forces exerting pressure on corporations that have data. I believe we're going to solve it by corporations seeing it as an internal problem and creating their own enterprise data ethics guidelines and creating a culture where data ethics is one of the things that everybody who touches data is aware of, that this is a key corporate value and that we recognize that ethics is subjective so we have guidelines, but we also have conversations and we also have resources to support you when you are uncertain about what's the right thing to do. I think the alternative there is when the public or consumers stop supporting non-ethical companies, right? You know, if we're giving our money to the companies that are demonstrating uh, this, the values we want to see in our suppliers, then the ones that are doing questionable processing will have to get in line. I wish I believed that would happen and make a big difference, but if I had confidence in people acting against unethical processes, we wouldn't hear all this bullshit we're hearing about election fraud today. If, if consumers, if people could make a difference, we'd already be past this. So I was trying to give Dave the last word. So uh, Dave, you have the last word. Thank you very much. Wonderful dialogue amongst all our panelists. We will meet next month to address the final five predictions uh, in our article. And thanks to our audience for tuning in. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you want more content from business intelligence to data management to data science, browse to the Eckerson Group website at eckerson.com.